the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh boy, a busy day in Washington, D.C. as the United States Supreme Court solidifies protections for workers who request religious accommodations. But perhaps the bigger news today, colleges and universities can no longer use race as a factor in their admissions decisions. Welcome to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts keeping you company as we do every day at this time from 5 until 7 p.m. Addressing issues that impact your life and your world. And my goodness, if you're looking towards a scholastic career at a college or university, this has the potentiality of impacting your world. Let's get some insights now as we're joined by educator, attorney, and former speechwriter for Patrick Buchanan, author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education, Mr. Joe Murray. And counselor, always great to have you with us. Craig, good to be here tonight, and like you said, what a whirlwind day, and we still have more cases coming tomorrow. <laughs> we we do indeed, so as the old saying goes, don't get too excited till the fat lady is sung, and they're just queuing up the orchestra. All Amen right, we, to that. Let's talk about these two big decisions. I want to start first with this notion of the impact on academia. Now, you know, there's been this debate over whether or not so-called quota systems have been to the detriment of non-minority students, certainly historically since the mid-1970s. The Supreme Court heretofore had pretty consistently ruled that schools can consider the race of applicants in pursuing educational benefits so long as they didn't create a so-called quota system. What was different about this particular case before the Supreme Court that caused them to decide that this notion was just simply no longer valid in 2023 educational arenas? Well, a couple things. Uh, it, it, this was not an, a quota system per se, but what they were doing at Harvard and the University of North Carolina was they were taking race into account and using race to determine who got the letter of admission. So if you look at the breakdown, uh, and I think what people need to understand, I don't, I think everybody is assuming that these were brought by white college students, and that's not the case because, uh, especially dealing with Harvard, it was brought by Asian students because you had a number of Asian students who were getting either perfect or near perfect on their SATs or ACTs. Uh, they were doing these great things, but they weren't getting into Harvard because statistically, an Asian American student had a 12.5% chance of getting into Harvard based upon Harvard's race-based admission system. African Americans had about a 51% chance. Uh, Latinos had about a 33 and a third percent chance. And white students maybe had just a little bit more than and what the Asians folks had. And, and I think what people were saying, and, and this is what the, many of the Asian students were saying, is this isn't right. Uh, we have worked very hard to get to where we are. 
and you are looking at only our race. You know, you're looking at our race and saying, look, we're not going to get a, a seat because of our skin color or our, our ethnicity. And I think what the Supreme Court said is that, look, this isn't right. Uh, we need to return back to the meritocracy. Now, we need to recognize that the starting point has not been the same for everyone. Uh, a lot of that has to deal with race and, and, and issues. But if you think about it, Craig... Asian Americans had a rough time when they got over here to begin with. Uh, they were out there in your neck of the woods building that railroad under horrible conditions, uh, had a lot of discrimination. One of the other famous Supreme Court uh, cases involved a, uh, a San Francisco uh, Asian laundromat. So Asians, too, have had a hard run about it. And I think what the court is saying, there's no, there's no easy way to get admissions if you use race. So we need to go back to the way of using merit. But I know you're probably gonna have a follow-up question is, will this end race in admissions? And unfortunately the answer is no. All right, let's break a few things down here. And, I, and I'm, I'm struck yeah. by the fascinating juxtaposition that while in Washington, D.C., the Supreme Court was having this debate and saying, yeah, uh, providing particular favors or a leg up or advantages to um, certain minority students um, is just it's not fair. It's not right. So they've handed down this decision today, um, essential of nullifying um, so-called affirmative action in education. And yet here in California, we are engaged in a very heated and spirited discussion related to things like reparations. And how do we go about acknowledging and in some ways trying to bring a little bit of parity to those who have generationally suffered from the impact of the days of Jim Crow laws and slavery in America, et cetera, et cetera. So California is saying, you know, we recognize there are degrees of institutional racism that continues to be baked into the system that has proved to be a disadvantage for people of color. So we need to do something to compensate folks for that. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court saying, yeah, we can't consider things of that sort. It has to be uh, blind from a race standpoint. Now, I, I certainly from a sense of of leveling the playing field, you know, they ought to consider what the grade point average looks like and nothing more. Clearly, that has not been the case historically. But but what do you make of, from your professional opinion, of of, of sort of this sort of, uh, shall we say, major difference between how California is looking at the issue of reparations versus how the Supreme Court has looked at the issue of affirmative action as it relates to education? Well, I think this is the great divide that's in our country right now. I think if you look at it across the board, you're going to have folks that either going to be just left of center or, or liberal are going to view it as this is not a colorblind society. This is a society that very much recognizes color. And because of that, we have to use race in, in making our decisions. Uh, we saw that on the Supreme Court with our more liberal uh, jurists uh, arguing that point. And then you have others who say, no, no, the Constitution is colorblind. It, it provides equality, not equity. And therefore, we have to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to succeed and not the opportunity to finish. And, and I think that is where we're seeing right now when you look at what happened with our Supreme Court decision and when you look at what's going on in California, and it is this big equity versus equality debate that is raging all across the country, but predominantly in education. Because, Craig, the other part of this is this isn't going to stop at just Harvard and, and U, uh, University of North Carolina. This is going to have ramifications 
at the elementary school and the middle school and the high school level because under the guise of equity there are programs there are there are things that are offered based upon race there are preferences given based upon race as you see i know in, in your neck of the woods too they've had debates on whether or not to have honor programs or whether or not have schools based on merit because that might be racist what the supreme court is saying here is you can't do that so this is going to start to uh, unwind a little bit but for everybody that's on the left that is worrying that the affirmative action is dead and, and that race isn't going to be a factor, there's already end runs being made around this decision, Greg, because what is going to happen is that the essay, the college essay, is going to be where the students are able to talk about diversity and their unique attributes. So while the school might not be able to ask a race statement, uh, you know, a diversity or an inclusion statement or use that in its admission uh, policy, it will be able to just look at the student's essay and try to make an end run around what the court is mandating today. I want to play devil's advocate for a moment here um, and, and raise an issue that may complicate this even further. And that is simply this. As we're having this debate over what criteria should be used to allow or disallow certain students access to higher education, I have to wonder if maybe at the core we're asking ourselves the wrong question. And at and, and least it sounds like I'm heading for a Bernie Sanders Joe Biden moment here. Uh, I look at this and, and I compare this to other countries that I am familiar with where education, K through university, is largely provided for free through taxpayer dollars. Basically, any child that wishes to have a higher education and walk away with a degree as a doctor, a lawyer, a mathematician, a scientist, what have you, they are afforded the opportunity to do that. Do we get a little bit lost here, I'm wondering, as we debate how we sort of, how should we say, divvy out, divvy up the the scant few openings at a Harvard, at a Columbia, at a Princeton, when should the broader debate be, are we doing this backwards? Shouldn't we be talking about the fact that there's apparently a significant shortage of quality schools and so that we should be doing things to not adjust who gets in and who gets out, but rather to try to sort of lower the bar here in the sense of, of, of allowing the way for anyone who wants a higher education to have one? No, I agree. I think that this is also an indictment in what's going on with public and higher education. I think what we see now with the millennial generations and the Gen Zs, they are they are basically struggling over boatloads of student debt. Now, I'm not going to get into the morality and the, and the politics of whether they should have to pay or, or what have you, but the fact is these kids graduate from just four years of school with, with basically a mortgage. Uh, if they decide to go on to law school or medical school, they have a mortgage for a home that would probably never be able to afford right out of school, but that they're carrying that debt. Um, and depending on what you study, I mean, and this is where I always thought universities run somewhat of a scam, they offer majors in interpretive dance. They take your $90,000, and then when you graduate, they kick you out, and they know darn right well you're not going to get a job in interpretive dance, but they want their money back. And really, it's really the government that, that has financed that. So I think what we need to do is go back to the way of getting the government out of education. When I mean that, and I mean I mean that in terms of student loans. I know that sounds harsh, but let's talk about why 
college is so expensive because the colleges can charge these exorbitant prices because they know the government is going to underwrite the loans for this. It's just like they do with Medicare and Medicaid. That's why the hospitals charge what they charge. Now, we need to create some opportunity, some pathway for kids to get to school if they want. But like you said, they might not be able to get to the Cadillac of schools. They might be able to only get to the Chevrolet, uh, which is still a good education, uh, but it, it's not going to be what they want, but maybe what they need. And I think what we're going to see now, look at education. We need to get back to the merit-based uh, aspect of education, and we need to get back to the idea that a four-year college is not necessarily where you have to go, because if you are good with your hands, if you are good with trades, with whether it's plumbing, electrical work, alignment, whether it's a factory job, whether it's a pilot, why do you need to go to a four-year college to become a pilot? You don't. You go to a you go to an aviation school and get your deal there. And I'm going to tell you what: living in the shadow of FedEx here in Memphis, those pilots make very good money. So I think we have to break up this monopoly of higher education and 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 kind of give the path that you were talking about, understanding it might not be a four-year degree. Well, and, and I'm so glad I'm going to have you pick up this topic on the other side of the break here. I am so glad that you brought this up because I have often wondered, and you alluded to this a moment ago, we have individuals with four-year degrees in English literature that are working as baristas at a Starbucks. And yet there has been this steady march away from things like trade schools and other forms of education to suggest that, well, if you want to be a success in life, you have to have a college degree. I mean, it's almost as if we have held that out as the penultimate, recognizing that there's also a very vested interest that many of these organizations have, because let's face it, this is big, multi-billion dollar business. And if you look at, at the rate of inflation historically over the last 40 years, and on average about 2% a year, and yet I'll give you one example here. Um, we saw the average education at a nonprofit, I'm sorry, at a public university in the period from 2019 to 2023 surge at a increase of inflation of 180%, even though the inflation rate's been 6-7% per annum for everything else we buy. What a significant and unbelievable increase in the inflation rate for an education, and yet we have it hammered into kids' heads, education, education, education. I'm not against it, but you know, education can also include trade school, and guess what? The kid that whose parents spent over a hundred grand to send them through a four-year university in order to get their degree in English literature and is working as a barista at Starbucks for twenty-three dollars an hour could have taken the same student, put them through trade school to become a plumber, and now they're making one hundred and twenty-five dollars an hour. It just seems as if there's a little something, you know, whether the, the, there's something in the fix here, as the saying goes, that I don't think we've been entirely honest about, and I want to dig deeper into that when we come back. With us today is educator, attorney, former speechwriter for Patrick Buchanan, Mr. Joe Murray, author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education. You can guess by the title, he knows wherewith of which he speaks. We take a time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with me is best-selling author of Take Back Education, educator and attorney, Mr. Joe Murray. We are talking about the Supreme Court decision just handed down that basically nullifies using race as an admissions criteria. And, of course, we're seeing some pretty significant reactions. Some are applauding this decision. Others extremely upset. Uh, For example, California Attorney General Rob Bonta responding to the ruling today by saying, quote, he's deeply disappointed about the potential impact on efforts to create inclusive learning environments, close quote. As we're talking with Joe Murray, as I say, Joe, it it seems as if we're we're kind of focusing perhaps on the wrong thing. It, It isn't the idea of, well, there are limited slots of available, so let's have a lottery and decide who gets in and who does, doesn't, as opposed to saying, you know what, every child has an opportunity, should have an opportunity at, at, at being equipped for a future as a business person or whatever their particular uh, you know, calling might be, but that should not necessarily be exclusively in a two- or four-year college or university degree. There's other places, too, but it seems as if we've kind of completely ignored the old notion of things like trade schools or the idea of saying, hey, we don't have enough housing. Let's build more houses. Here's a thought. We don't have enough of universities. Let's build some more. Yeah, and, and that's true. And I think, you know, and the universities, like you said right before the break, it is a business. And, and they know they want to pack as many classes as they can because that means tuition and that means a big endowment and everything is going great. So if the government's going to stay in this with student loans, and I think the example you gave was the uh, English lit uh, major, if you get government money to go to school, the government should have to kind of have a say in what you study because it is an investment by the government government in the education and you go in there and take interpretive dance or English lit, the government should be able to say, well, we're only going to fund X amount of dollars for that. Um, and, and I think once you get some accountability, because unfortunately, a lot of these kids go into college not understanding that. And the schools aren't really guiding them on this because once they got them, they got them. And they're like, fine, do what you want for four years because we got the money. And therefore, you're not going to be our problem once you graduate and, and this debt comes in from you you know, Fed loan or whoever's uh, whoever's uh, managing the loans at this point, and, and I think that's the disservice. It's almost kind of a shadiness right there. Um, or, or if you're going to offer majors, the school should be able to sit down with the kids and say, "Look, the, the likelihood of you finding a, ma- a job after you graduate, if you choose this major, is this percent," uh, and base that upon uh, the data they get from uh, their alumni who goes out. So there is a way to make this more transparent, but being transparent is bad for business. And I think that's the rub. So yes, admissions is key. And I think we're always going to want the best in the capitalistic society that we have in the competitive society we have, we want the best. So we're always going to be fighting for limited slots at whether it's the best school, the best car, the best restaurant, uh, you're always going to fight for that. And that's a good thing because that breeds uh, excellence. But I think we just have to kind of rethink how we fund it and how we how we present it to to the next generation, because we have clearly screwed up uh, on the last few generations. And we need to kind of right this ship, even if it means universities are going to get a little pinch in the pocketbook. Well, and again, you know, the notion and and we see this happen all the time, Joe, there are universities and we've got a couple right here in the Bay Area. Take Stanford University sitting on a billion plus dollar endowment and they just seem to grow the money, grow the money, grow the Mm -hmm. money. It's like the Mormon church. We're sending a 
aside billions of dollars for a rainy day instead of saying, what can we do to make education more accessible, more affordable? I mean, from the standpoint, I, I get, you know, it's probably more of a of a, a vote getting ploy than anything else for the administration to want to forgive student loan debt. But I'm thinking, well, what happened to the days when a child could go to college or university, get an education, go out, find a trade, be successful? It just seems as if we have, like healthcare, treated this as simply another big business opportunity, and we're doing so to the detriment of not only our children, but quite frankly, to the, to the success and future of our nation. Yeah, you know what trade schools don't do? They don't worry about the applicant's race. They get the kids in there, they get them trained, and they get them out. <laughs> So I mean, they're not—they're not trying to have many kids make diversity impact statements or all of this nonsense. They're saying, "Okay, you want to come learn a trade? You're going to come get trained, and then we're going to get you out and make room for the next group of kids that come in." And these are good-paying jobs, uh, and that's why what I—I I don't understand why all of a sudden you know Mike Rowe does a good job on this, talking about how there are so many jobs out there that might not. Uh, be accepted by kind of the elite, but they will give you a a solid income, a great income, and stability in the world. And that's what we should all want, because honestly, Craig, if we start giving the next generation stability, if we give them jobs that they can afford to buy a house, that they can afford some of the luxuries, that we can get out of this, this economy where we're living paycheck to paycheck, then really race no longer becomes a burning issue because we're giving people pathways out of poverty. And that's what education is supposed to be, a pathway out of poverty. It doesn't mean that everybody goes to Harvard or Stanford or Yale. It means everybody has the opportunity to be educated. Now, educated in what? That is what we're fighting or talking about right now because I think a lot of kids can be educated in trade and they can start to get out of poverty. And then their next gen, the generation after them will be better off. And that's how it used to be here. And somewhere along the line, we got lost. We did indeed. And, you know, that's why I say as much as some people are pushing back on the Supreme Court decision and questioning the, you know, the motivation, I think the bigger question ought to be, why did we feel we needed that in the first place? If we had enough schools that were available to all students who wanted it and encourage kids to, you know, to kind of seek where their area of greatest expertise was. Not everybody is going to become a lawyer or a doctor. Some are going to do a fantastic fantastic job as an electrician and there's nothing to be embarrassed or apologize for it in fact electricians make very good money but seldom do we hear about well you have other opportunities and there's you know go get yourself a good honest trade we don't hear things like that and and when there have been some trade schools they've been strictly for profit at ridiculous rates and then you come to find out that yeah i guess what they're scamming their students yeah, and that's unfortunate. And you know what? Going to the quota system, Craig, it just never made sense. Because if we were to live by a true quota and have universities that were reflective of the population, uh, you know, let's take Harvard. Uh, the Asian population is roughly 6%, yet the student body of the class of 2025 is about 30% Asian. Uh, and, and the thing is, if we're only going to go by quotas and be reflective of society, and it, it, 
this doesn't make sense because what we do is we begin to create more and more crazy scenarios to justify the crazy scenarios we've created when we've no longer looked at merit and we start looking at other factors. And, and I need to be clear, I am in no way saying that a person's race or, or race or ethnicity is not part of who they are. It is. But there has to be more when we start to elevate. When I was doing race cases, Craig, and I did a lot of uh, employment discrimination based on race, Title Seven. all the people that I represented with whether they were women or African-Americans, all they wanted was a fair shot. And they didn't like this affirmative action stuff because there was always a cloud of suspicion over their achievement. Did they get this job because of their color? Did they get this job because of their gender? And they might have gotten it on merit, but they always had to deal with that perception of, of they didn't earn it. They didn't get it based upon the merit. And I think that is a grave disservice. We've created generations of people that have succeeded and have to live under a cloud of suspicion because we didn't have faith that they could overcome the obstacles. Now, if I'm saying that somebody is openly racist and discriminatory, you're darn right. We're going to get in there and fix that. But we're no longer trying to just stop instances of racism. We're now trying to stop instances before they get there. And in doing so, we're creating a whole race mess that basically discriminates against some, leaves some disillusioned, and leaves some kind of disincentivized in terms of the achievements they have gotten. And it's, it's a big mess. We're going to take a time out when we come back. I want to pivot to another recent Supreme Court decision that has certainly the potential of impacting everyone listening to this program. With me today is Joe Murray. He's an educator, an attorney, former speechwriter, and author of Take Back Education, best-selling book available through Amazon.com. We take a time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. That's Todd Grill. They're getting ready for uh, 4th of July barbecue, sounds like. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts visiting in this segment of the show with best-selling author of the book, Take Back Education, Joe Murray. Joe is an educator and an attorney by trade and served as a speechwriter for Patrick Buchanan during his campaign for the presidency. We've been talking about historic Supreme Court decision related to affirmative action in education, but that's not the only one that the court has handed down. Uh, today as well, they use the case of a Christian male man who didn't want to work on Sundays to address the issue of protections for workers who seek religious accommodations in the workplace. Uh, this was a unanimous decision, which I found uh, encouraging and quite interesting, Joe. Well, you know, I thought Hades had frozen over. Yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe it was part of that accommodation. And the other thing was, I was like, wait, the post office works on Sunday? No, I'm just joking. Yeah. I know they do. But this is an interesting case, Craig, and this is really in my wheelhouse. I did Title Seven litigation for quite some time, and this took the 1977 case that held that, you know, if a religious accommodation was going to leave an employer shorthanded or would create a burden on them, then they had the right to deny it. It, it just made them assess the reasonableness of the accommodation. And if they assess that reasonableness and say, yeah, nope, I'm going to have to pay, call another person and pay them more money, uh, then the employer could say, look, you know, accommodation, and that was the law of the land. But this decision, it, it changes the game, and it's going to be interesting to see how the case law develops. Because I promise you, Craig, this case will be, need to be clarified over the next 10 years. 
it's not going to be as simple as I get to go to church on Sunday. I promise you it's going to be a little bit more complicated. But the standard right now is that the burden is now completely shifted onto the employer, and they have to prove that there is not just a burden but a substantial burden that would be that would be created by accommodating the request for the religious accommodation. So what is a substantial burden going to be? All this stuff is going to have to be ferreted out. But right now we know because the the uh, the 1977 case is basically gone now, we know a substantial burden is that it is not going to be that you're just shorthanded or you have to pay more money. It's going to have to be something more than that. What we're going to get to see in the next uh, few years. Yeah, and this really comes down to an important issue because there there was an aspect of this decision in writing the the opinion by by Justice Roberts, uh, no association, uh, that that essentially broke down this notion that it had to be a request that would not proved to be an undue hardship for the business that the so-called de minimis cost but that's a little bit uh, how should we say that's a little bit sketchy in the sense that how you might define it how the employer defines it could be two entirely different things who gets to be the final arbiter and does this mean that well if I bring somebody else in because you want the day off I have to pay somebody else overtime normally you would only get a regular rate because that's your your quote unquote scheduled day I mean at what point do we parse these minor details that essentially can nevertheless be used to deny a person the, the, the religious accommodation. And then there's the other extreme that says, well, if the, the high holy day for a Christian is on, say, Good Friday and Easter, and I want to have those two days off, okay. Now, what happens when the Muslim comes and says, yeah, during Ramadan, I'll need two weeks. How do you deal with that? Yeah, and that's where it's going to be. And, and that's what's going to be, uh, as we see case law develop, it's going to be the case-by-case scenario. And you're going to see this stuff develop differently in each circuit. The Ninth Circuit may be viewing a little bit more in favor of the employer. The Seventh Circuit might go more towards the employee. And eventually, you're going to see these examples work their way up for the Supreme Court for even more clarification. So, as I've always said, when you, whenever you're dealing with Title VII groundbreaking and, and precedent-changing cases in Title VII, uh, just that groundbreak is just just the beginning, uh, okay? Because I, I treat it like an, an Etch-A-Sketch, right? So what this case today, you know, you had the TWA case, that 1977 case that talked about the diminishment clause and so forth. What the court did today was take that Etch-A-Sketch etch and just shake it up. So now we're going to see a new drawing made in terms of what what certain things are going to mean as this case begins to to be the guiding light uh, for the for the very many district courts that will begin to hear these cases under this new precedent. Yeah, I, I can just see you know while, while they certainly as people of faith we we, we celebrate uh, providing a codification of protections for workers who ask for religious accommodations. Uh, we all know that this has the the capability of running off the rails and being taken advantage of. Uh, pretty quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, it will, and I think that's what's going to be the first thing that the district courts will begin to will begin to do. Because mind you, now all these cases are going to be at the district court level, the trial court level, and there will be motions for summary judgment, and it'll be those district court judges. It'll be up to them to determine 
how to keep everybody in the straight and narrow. And if they rule a certain way, then that will be appealed up. And, and like I said, it's going to be a, a, at least five to seven years before we get to see some clarity on what this what this means. And interestingly enough, you know, I think it's it's interesting because this was a unanimous decision. Uh, I know a lot of the reporters. I know you probably caught the press conference of, of President Biden saying that this isn't a normal court. In, in I kind of agree with them a little bit, Craig, because if you look at this court, they're unanimous on this decision. And then you have, of course, uh, the decision we just talked about with affirmative action. And then you go back and you look at the voting rights decision. I actually think this isn't a normal court because it's actually following the law. (laughs) So I think you're seeing these very interesting decisions because this court is actually trying to follow the Constitution this time, which is why I think tomorrow's cases of Biden student loan program and the the case out of, if I'm not mistaken, Colorado over the Baker and the same-sex marriage issue, uh, I think they're going to be interesting because if I'm, you know, I, my prediction is going to be, Craig, that Biden student loans get nixed, and I think the court's going to come down in favor of the Baker who's asking for relief, uh, you know, saying, look, I want to be a baker, I want to have a bakery, but I'm a Christian, and I don't believe in same-sex marriage, so I don't want to have to make this take. Will you give me a declaration that I don't have to? And I think the Supreme Court's going to come down in favor of this person. I think it's going to be interesting. I think we're starting to return to some sense of sanity. And uh, I think so far the courts have got all the decisions right. Well, and I got to tell you, I, I was I was surprised when I saw the elections decision handed down, uh, and particularly when I saw the makeup of, of how the vote went. And I thought this is this is very interesting. Uh, uh, it did not go the way I, I would have anticipated it was going to go, and certainly not everybody that voted uh, in favor of was was who I necessarily expected to. So you may be right. Uh, you know, th- there's been a lot of criticism of the court in recent years. We know certainly both between the appointments made by uh, former President Trump, in addition to some of the heat that uh, Clarence Thomas, for example, has been taking, mm-hmm. that some people were really concerned that, boy, this this whole this whole court is going to run off the rails. And I think we always need to be cautious to never suggest that, well, the court is not in harmony with the public's opinion on this. Well, you know, at the end of the day, the court is not there to be an arbiter of public opinion. The court is there to decide whether or not a particular law is constitutional or not. And while I think we have to recognize there's oftentimes an ideological gulf between what the Constitution says and maybe what reality says, nevertheless, at the end of the day, the mandate before the Supreme Court by the Constitution is an extremely narrow one. And so if their decisions don't always square with public opinion, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. And that's why it was designed. It was designed to have an arbiter that is going to be detached from the public and detached from the passions in order to hopefully render a, a, a dispassionate uh, opinion based upon the rule of law uh, and not necessarily the will of the people. Exactly. And, and if the opinions that come out don't square with what the general populace wants, then you have an opportunity to go before the United States Congress and say, we're not happy with this. This is the way the court has decided based on what the Constitution says. As we need to make a proposal to change the Constitution so we can correct this. And that opportunity exactly. is afforded to us. 
And in some cases, it's usually state laws that are brought up. And if Congress really wants to fix it, they can go ahead and create a national law within their purview. So there are ways that we can do around it. And that's why this system is, is, is so brilliant, is that it gives each branch of uh, government their own unique role and their own voice. And it allows us to work this stuff out and it allows us to balance this because, you know, it's all about the checks and balances. Well, and I was just going to say, it, and, and some people kind of bark about that and they say, ah, they, they, they made a vote that went against my guy or against my uh, my position well that this system of checks and balances is there for that very reason to make sure none of the three branches gets out of line or ends up exercising more power than it ought to Exactly. You know, I, when I was doing cases many moons ago, I used to have a magistrate judge, and he'd always give us settlement conferences before we had to do settlement conferences, before we'd actually go to trial. And he always told me that if he could get everybody unhappy uh, in accepting a settlement, then he's done his job. And I think that's how the world works. Nobody should always get everything that they want. Uh, there has to be compromise when you live in a, a diverse society. Boy, so, you know, yeah. if, if we could just get that message across to uh, folks across the board, even in understanding the different between you know, liberals versus conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, that, you know, at the end of the day, if the label we all accept is Americans, then a little bit of the art of compromise is is necessary. At least we end up, you know, taking each other's heads off and tanking the whole system. Exactly. And I think that's what we've lost in this zero-sum game that we're now playing. Uh, you don't see each other as necessarily adversaries. You see each other as good and evil. And when you set that dichotomy, you can't compromise because nobody will compromise with evil. So if your opponent is always evil, there's no compromise. No compromise means we're in this constant state of gridlock and, 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 and disdain, which is why it's sad because I, I don't see it getting better anytime soon. And, 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 I, and that's sad for the next generation coming up. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't see it getting better anytime soon either. But I think the the uh, the wisdom of that uh, of that judge is right bang on. You know, at the end of the day, the decision that is a, a, a reached, be it in Congress or in a courthouse, leaves everybody walking away a little happy and everybody walking away a little bit disappointed. Probably a good thing. Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer. And of course, he is an educator and author of Take Back Education. Joe, we always celebrate and appreciate your time and your insights equally on these very important issues today uh, handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I first learned about Child Evangelism Fellowship, oh my goodness, probably almost 40 years ago. And while you might not be familiar with the name, their impact to this very day continues. I mean, not only do they have a strong presence ministering in all 50 states, they are also actively involved in overseas missions. In fact, roughly 175 countries nationwide. And while the impact is certainly global. There's an awful lot of exciting things going on locally as well. Let's get more. Moises Estevez joins us, Executive Vice President of Child Evangelism Fellowship. And Moises, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. Let's talk a bit about some brief history of this organization and the incredible impact that it's having in reaching young hearts with the gospel. Sure. Our founder, Reverend Jesse Overholzer, started evangelizing children with a great passion in the the early 20s uh, and continued on into the 30s. And then the ministry finally got organized as a formal organization in 1937. 
um, that same by the time he passed away in the mid in the mid fifties, CEF had work organized in sixty countries. That same passion continues today. We're organized in most nations of the world, and we have about uh, eight hundred staff and full time staff in the USA. Four hundred offices in. Uh, worldwide, we have about 3,500 staff, and and our staff and volunteers are very passionate to bring the knowledge of God to boys and girls, and to teach them the scriptures, and to share with them about Christ, and it's a, it's a joyful work, and um, it is so wonderful when you have the chance to explain the gospel to a child, and that child gets it, and they place their faith in Christ, and they're born again. It's a wonderful thing, and, and God continues to do a great great work around the world. And, you know, the importance of that impact early on, you know, uh, it, it is so much easier to plant those seeds. You know, Scripture says, train up a child in the way that he or she should go, right? Um, and, and, right. and I'm struck by the fact that oftentimes as adults, you know, we go through all kinds of challenges in order to kind of fight our way out of our own ignorance and to, to recognize and acknowledge the work that Christ has done on the cross for us. And yet, an organization like Child Evangelism Fellowship can introduce a young child to concepts of the gospel and, and, and do it in a fashion that for them is very easily relatable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we call it teaching the Bible on the, on the lower shelf and with, with simple language, but but very much biblically centered, and, and children get it. Actually, the Lord himself in Mark 10 said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for of such belongs the kingdom of God. And then another sentence he, he says a little later, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So even adults have, be, have to become like a child, have a simple faith like a child, in order to enter the kingdom of God. So we, uh, we say all evangelism is child evangelism in a sense but when we present the gospel to children and and even teach about sin and teach about God's solution for sin and and what Jesus did on the cross for them on on, on the empty tomb they readily believe and accept and and are eager to place their trust in Christ so it's transformational we hear stories all the time uh, the transformational power of the gospel not just in the life of the child but in the family in the community in addition to reaching young children in partnership with local churches. I understand that um, CEF also has a very distinct active presence in public schools across the country. Tell me about that. That's right. So, uh, interestingly, this month, uh, or, or this week, everybody's talking about the decisions from the United States Supreme Court. 22 years ago this month, there was a decision of the United States Supreme Court uh, in a case between Good News Club versus Milton School District, in which we won that case, six votes to three, that it is constitutional to have equal, equal access in public schools, just like other organizations, after the last bell rings. And that opened the door for school-based um, Bible clubs that we call good, weekly Good News Clubs. And uh, we have had thousands and thousands of schools with uh, with those Bible clubs. Actually, right there in, in NorCal, Chelsea Cummins, our uh, state leader, reports that this spring they had 198 Good News Clubs. Most of those took place in 166 uh, public schools. So the doors are open. 
really what we need, and, and in many cases we have principals that are saying, please come, we see the good effects of the Goodness Club, please come for our school. What we need is more teams, more churches to partner with, teams we can train and, and take on this, you know, place a Goodness Club, a lighthouse for the gospel in each public school, even in North Cal and other, obviously other states as well. And that said, I know that Child Evangelism Fellowship has long had a vision of reaching 100 million children around the globe every year with the gospel. Toward that end, in terms of impact here locally in the San Francisco Bay region, if folks want to get involved, how can they get in touch? Well, uh, uh, the best, easiest way really is to go to our website, that's cefonline.com, cefonline.com, and there we have a tab for location, so if they put their zip code, um, the closest CEF office to where they live shows up, and they can contact that, send an email to that local director to find more information locally and, and figure out how they can get involved. Uh, but the doors are wide open, and the need is great. So uh, we welcome folks to to help us bring the gospel to the children. The, the need is indeed great. And again, information available by simply going to cefonline.com. Think of Child Evangelism Fellowship, cefonline.com. Our thanks to Moises Estevez, Executive Vice President of Child Evangelism Fellowship, for that update. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.